Christ was resurrected, taught for 40 days. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He told his tiny band of followers to stay in the upper room until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, 10 days later, something called Pentecost happened. It was on the Festival of Weeks in Jerusalem. There were three major festivals that required all the males that could go to Jerusalem to go there, and the Festival of Weeks was one of them. So Jerusalem was packed with people. And in the midst of this overflowing population, the Holy Spirit came down upon the people of God and they began to proclaim the gospel in languages that they had never learned before. There was no Rosetta Stone. There was no crash course on the internet. They started speaking the language of people who had journeyed from many, many thousands of miles to be in Jerusalem. And the people started hearing the language or the gospel in their own language. And the Bible says that they were amazed and perplexed by what was happening. And so as these languages proclaiming the good news of Christ were being preached out, people started coming from all over the city to this incredible happening. And some of the local men who weren't versed in multiple languages laughed and said, these simple Galileans are just drunk. And Peter stood up and said, brothers, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And he said, what you are hearing is a fulfillment of what was prophesied by the Old Testament prophet Joel. Because Joel says in his book, And in the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on every male servant and female servant I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders and... Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says it's being fulfilled right now. And then he gives this sermon that we have in an encapsulated form in Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This man was Messiah. He did marvelous works. He healed people. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. This man was attested to by miracles, and he is Messiah. And this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The eternal plan of the ages was brought to fruition when Jesus was betrayed and put on a cross. And you crucified and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death in the grave. And three times he says, Jesus was risen. Jesus was risen. He says it again in verse 31. Then he says, this Jesus God raised up and that all of you are witnesses to that. And then he says, also he's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured it out upon us today. So he's Messiah, 
He was crucified and betrayed. He rose victorious over death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he's poured out the Holy Spirit. And he said, some of the men cried out to him, what shall we do? They were cut to their hearts. Maybe some of these men were the same ones who on the day Jesus was brought to trial cried out, release unto us Barabbas, not Jesus. We want a murderer, a man of sedition, not Jesus. Release to us Barabbas. And as the crushing reality of what they had done hit them, they said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, brothers, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, turn from your sin and be baptized in the name of Messiah Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you will be forgiven. And something happened that was incredible on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 men repented and believed and were baptized in the name of Jesus. And this is the aftermath. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I want to think about this passage in the next few weeks, about what it means to have awe and what happens when awe is part of our life and what feeds a life of awe. There's a wonderful book by a guy named Tripp, Paul David Tripp. It's entitled Awe, this word. And this is what he says in his book. He says this, I need to put my heart in a place where I can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God that reaches far beyond the bounds of the most expressive words in the human vocabulary. And I, I read this and I think about this and I ask myself, is my heart filled with awe of God? See, awe is that which produces worship and love and robust energy in your life. Awe is that which causes us to adore the Lord. And awe must be continually replenished because I'm a leaky bucket. And it's easy to lose your focus. I was thinking about this, and I thought about many years ago when I was at seminary. And in seminary, they have something called a preaching lab. And there were 16 of us in the preaching lab. And the preaching professor said, choose the text you want, and I will grade you on the text. And we stood up and we preached to each other. And six out of 16 chose the same text. It was somewhat humorous. The text they chose, these seminary students, was a well-known passage, Revelation 2, 1 and following. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus, a well-known passage of Scripture where it says that I know your works, that you, are, you toil and you are patient in your endurance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who all call themselves apostles, but they are not and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and that you're bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. And that he says later that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans that I hate. And we're not sure who the Nicolaitans were, but they were bad dudes. So there's a patient church, an enduring church, a biblically sound church, a church committed to the apostolic teaching, a church that worked and labored. But 
The Lord says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so all the guys camped on that, and they said, you know, we need to return to our first love. And you say, well, why are they preaching that? Here's why they preach that. You go to seminary, it's a four-year experience, three and a half, four years, and you go there just full of zeal, and your, 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 your balloon is full of helium, and you want to do the right thing. And then you start studying Greek and Hebrew and church history and systematic theology, and you start doing this and that. And then sometimes you get married in seminary, or if you come to seminary married, you have a baby, and you work part-time, and you, have, you don't get sleep, and you just get worn down and really the zeal you have for Christ can quickly, quickly dissipate. And so that was the experience we were going through. But it's an experience true to all Christians, that awe leaks. And, and that's why Tripp says later in the book, he says, I, I need awe of him to recapture, refocus, and redirect my heart again and again. And I need to remember that the war for the awe of my heart still wages inside of me. And so I ask you, I ask myself, do I walk in the awe of God that produces worship and adoration and love and robust energy? And church, you know and I know and we're fully aware of the fact that it's easy to get to the, to the place where you pray the Lord's Prayer like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespass. We forgive those trespass against us. Please not temptation, but deliver us from me from thy kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It just becomes commonplace. So I, I look at this and I say, I, I want to be filled with awe. I want to be filled with worship and adoration and, and, and a, a type of yieldedness to God that leads to robust energy and, 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 and repentance. Now, understand this. The, the Greek word for awe is the word phobos, which can be translated fear. And there's, I've read a few books on fear, the fear of God, but the best thing I've ever read in the fear of God is from a little book, called, well, not a little book, but a book called The Principles of Conduct by a guy named John Murray, and he's got a chapter on the fear of God. Uh, and it's only 15 pages, and it, he just absolutely brings it home. But he, he says, in the Bible, there are two types of fear in the area of your relationship with God. There, there is the fear that awakens terror and dread and anguish. When I think of that, I think of the last judgment in the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo. A man, a man that has no hope. It's just fear and anguish and dread. He says, this fear and anguish and dread is outside of the reality of the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of sin. And you realize you do not measure up and there's no hope. And he said, this fear and anguish and dread can be clearly seen in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden after that eaten from the forbidden tree. It was in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife who had put fig leaves on themselves to cover their nakedness hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Adam, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, It was the woman. It's the woman that you gave me, Lord. See, immediate result of sin is blame shifting. It's the woman you gave me. It's your fault. It's her fault. I was just an innocent bystander. And then the Lord tells them that original sin has been visited upon them, would be visited upon the rest of mankind. And then this is said. This is so beautiful. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now what he's saying is, Adam, fig leaves won't do. Fig leaves, you know, patterns are of your own machination. They, they won't do. It's got to be the shed blood. And so this, this clothing with garments prefigured the sacrificial system among the people of Israel, which foresignified the coming Lamb of God, Jesus, on the cross. So it's all a typological statement of what Jesus would do as Messiah when he shed his blood for our sin, which we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And see, see, fear of God is replaced by awe of God. Fear of death is replaced by the understanding that beyond death there is hope. So, so fear is vanquished by the cross of Jesus. And so, so the awe that is in Acts chapter 2 is an awe that awakens confidence and love and diligence and energy and worship. And so I want to talk to you this morning about awe, and, and then the next week what awe produces, and then what feeds awe in the weeks to come. But, but just some comments about awe. First of all, we are hardwired to be men and women, if we're followers of Christ, who live with a sense of awe, adoration, worship, love, which awakens ourselves, robust energy. The, the shorter or larger catechism says, what, what, is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever or to walk in awe. Augustine, who died in 430, wrote a book called The Confessions of Augustine about his conversion, and he starts off the very first chapter by saying, we are made to be worshipers and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. So I'm made to be a man who walks in Ah, And as I look at the life of Christ, there, there are glimpses of the reality of who Christ is that awoke awe in the heart of the disciples. I think of Mark chapter 4. In, in Mark 4, there is a furious storm at sea, and these battle-tested sailors are afraid that they're about to die. They've never seen a storm or been a storm quite like this. And so there is a carpenter on the boat sleeping. And so they go in the back and they, they, they say, as they woke him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to die and you're sleeping. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, awe, and said to one another, 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's a brief glimpse of the glory and majesty of Christ, and it bowls them over. And then later in the book of Luke, uh, Peter and his friends who are fishermen. Peter's been on the front cover of Jerusalem Fisherman's Quarterly four times in his life. He's, he's a fisherman. He's got sunburned skin, and he's got salty hair, and he's got leathery. He's, he's a fisherman. And he and his friends have been out all night, the Bible says, fishing, and nothing had happened. And they're coming in. They've pulled in the nets. They've cleaned them. They're going home to sleep. They're dead tired, and they're disappointed, and they're a little bit angry. And then there's a carpenter standing on the shore. His name is Jesus. He's a carpenter. They're a fisherman. And Jesus says, Peter, let your nets down on the port side of the boat. And, and Peter, I think, says this to justify himself before his contemporaries. Peter is saying, really, this is foolish. He said, Lord, we fished all night. Nothing's happened. And under his breath, you read between the lines, Lord, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. I know my trade. And in all honesty, you don't know my trade. And I can't believe you're asking me to do this. It's kind of an embarrassment. I mean, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. But because you're the teacher, I will do it. And so half-heartedly, Peter turns to his buddies and says, Guys, let down the nets on the port side of the boat. And so they do. And the nets are so heavy with fish, they have to call some friends over to help them get the fish into their boat and into the other boat. And when Peter sees that, he falls on his face at the knees of Jesus, and he says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now, church, Peter said that, but he didn't really understand the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpoured Holy Spirit, the closing of the canon, the apostolic message. He just saw these things dimly. And I look at that and I say, my awe of Christ should be 100 times that of the apostle Peter. And then I say, are you walking in awe? And awe belongs only to Jesus. Now, I like sports. You know that if you've been here a couple of times. This guy is a great basketball player. His name was LeBron James. LeBron James just won the NBA championship, beat the team I was pulling for, the Golden State Warriors. Uh, he's 6'9", really by almost 6'9". He's just a specimen of a man. He averaged 26 points a game this year, and he was double-teamed most of the time, and he is a great athlete. He's half my age. But if LeBron James walked in today to this sanctuary, first of all, you would know it was LeBron James. I mean, he's 6'9 by 6'9. He's just a mountain of a man. If LeBron James walked in, I would be a little reticent to approach him because, man, he's, he's LeBron. He's, the king, he's King James. He's LeBron. And I'd probably walk in and say, LeBron, I really enjoy your basketball. Can you, can you sign my Bible right here? Just sign it right here. You know? And I would, I would be a little reticent. You know, he's, he is, or for those of you that are more cultured, just to make you feel at home, um, if this guy happened to walk in, his name is Yo-Yo Ma. I love Yo-Yo Ma. He's, the, he's a, a phenomenal cellist. He's a world beater. At age four, he gave a concert to Dwight Eisenhower on his cello in the White House. 
and two years later gave a concert to John F. Kennedy in the White House. I, I didn't do that when I was growing up, you know. He's an incredible, incredibly gifted man. He, he's produced over 90 records, and 19 of them have been Grammy award-winning records. He's, the cello he plays on is valued at $2.35 million. Don't touch the cello. But if you were in our orchestra, and they do such a great job in leading us in worship, if you were in our orchestra and all of a sudden we spotlighted Yo-Yo Ma, even those of us who don't appreciate that music would go, who is that guy? And I would be a little bit reticent to approach Yo-Yo Ma because I have such a deep respect for him. But I don't want to use the word awe because awe belongs only to Jesus. LeBron James and Yo-Yo Ma are gifted but they are sons of Adam like you and me. There is only one who's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and there's only one who deserves my ultimate awe. Number two, we need to embrace and love what I call awe signposts that point to the glorious creator God who is trying in his mercy. An awe signpost is something that, that awakens Worship or awakens wonder in my heart. But, but don't stop at the awe signpost. Go to the deeper reality. You, let me give you an example. I just wrote down some awe signposts this week in my life. I, I heard by video the incredible laughter of an almost 11-month-old grandson. It was beautiful. And I just stopped and said, God, you gave him the ability to laugh. You knit him together in his mother's womb. You're the great creator, God. I stand in awe of you as I look at the beauty of birth and the glory of creation. I don't want to stop, just, just stop there. I want to say, behold the mercy of God. I, 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 this week I stood and I watched wood storks fly over my head. These big birds, you can hear their wings flapping in the air and you go, Wow. And he'd say, God, you made creation, and it's beautiful. And, and the Bible says, Jesus, that all things were made by you, through you, and for you. So these awe signposts point to the deeper and the worship reality of all that Jesus is for us. Or I, I, I had thoughtful conversations with, with some friends as we grapple with some significant issues. And I thought, thanks be to God for, for men and women who think and think well and who have the ability to, to walk in the light that is found in Christ alone and bring the perspective of Christ to their conversations. Or, Glorious sunrises. Wow. And you stand there and say, God, you're glorious. You see, the, 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 these are signposts that point to the deep reality. Don't stop at the signpost only. And then Friday I went to the library. I go to the library, I'll grab four or five new books, and I just take them home and speed read through some of them and say, well, this is worth while this is not. And, but I, I just kind of picked up this little book. It's called Amazing Moms. It was put out by National Geographic. And anything National Geographic does is excellent. I mean, the photography is just world-class. And so I picked up this book, and I just thumbed through it, and this, it just talks about mothers in the animal kingdom. Uh, penguins. I don't know about penguins. I've never thought about penguins. But the pe penguins, listen, just, this, just little, little, these books, let's look at it. And so you're just beautiful pictures and little words. It's like being a student at the Clemson Library, you know? Small books, big pictures, not many words. Uh, that's pretty, that's, I think that's pretty funny. You know, it's pretty good. Anyway, so uh, penguins, it says penguins, they, they live in temperatures of minus 75 degrees. 
In Antarctica, in that a, a female emperor penguin will ha- give her egg to her mate, and for the next two months, he's in charge of the egg, and he'll hold it between his feet and put it in his pouch. And what she does is she jumps in the water, and she swims 50 miles or less, and she, she eats all this stuff, fish and squid and krill, and as much as she can digest it. When she gets there, she regurgitates it back into the mouth of her little penguin. That's amazing. I don't advocate that as feeding the way of feeding our kids. But, but, but listen, I thought, isn't that amazing? That God made the penguin and gave the penguin the ability to live in 75, minus 75 degree water. It's not just the impersonal plus time plus chance that somehow happened and somehow come together and did this and did that. No, God did it. And so I look at the penguins and I go, God, you are glorious in your mercy. Glorious in your creative energy. And then another one was, was the panda. I don't know which are pandas. The pandas are in China. 90% of their food is bamboo. And a panda is about the same size as our black bear. The male panda can grow to be 275, 280 pounds. The female is 200, 225 pounds. When a baby panda is born, he weighs three to five ounces. Big as a stick of butter. And the mama woos over him and nurtures him for three to five years. And I thought, isn't that incredible? Isn't creation wonderful? See, this is, to me, these are signposts to the ultimate glory of God. And thirdly, misplaced, misplaced awe, church, leads to the unraveling of my spirit. The only one who deserves ultimate awe and worship is Jesus. And there are many other things that are worthy of embrace and applause and love and encouragement, but only Jesus is to be worshiped. He is the only one to whom the word awe really resides. And I thought about the unraveling of my soul because I walk in awe that is not awe of the Lord. I thought about this guy in Daniel named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an a powerful king. Many say that he helped build the hanging towers of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He was a conqueror. He built a statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and said, Worship this only. And three godly Jehovah-worshipping men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. He threw them in the furnace, and they escaped unharmed. Those who threw them in died of of the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar's interest was heightened by this Jehovah God that has saved these men. And in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that there's a big flourishing tree and it's chopped down to the stump. And he tries to find somebody to interpret it. And he hears hears about this young Hebrew man named Daniel. He brings Daniel in and he says to Daniel, Daniel, this is what I've dreamed. What does it mean? And Daniel said, King, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're the tree. And your kingdom is going to be taken from you. It's going to be chopped down. And then Daniel did something, I think, incredibly, incredibly brave. He said this. He's, just, he's, a, he's a foreigner in a foreign land. And he says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you and break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to those who are oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And that you may avoid this fate. 
here's, here's a guy, he's a, he's, who is, who's Daniel? And yet he, he says, King, turn from your wicked ways. Care for the oppressed, and maybe you'll escape this. Well, a month later, excuse me, 12 months later, it says Nebuchadnezzar was walking along the royal palace roof in Babylon, and he beat his breast, and he said this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Then a voice came from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox for seven years. And immediately... He loses his mind, and he goes out, and the Bible says he doesn't cut his hair, and he doesn't trim his nails, and his nails became like claws, and his hair was, I'm sure, matted and dirty and filled with dirt and refuse, and I can see Nebuchadnezzar running through the streets of Babylon or maybe scurrying around the hanging gardens or out in the countryside, and the little boy says, Dad, who is that? And he says, Son, that, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Church... Whenever we stand in awe of anything, an idol, other than the living God whose name is Jesus, there's an unraveling in our spirit. After seven years, this is what happened. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And this is what he said. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And when I don't stand in awe of the living Christ, my life unravels. So just a few comments. Going to go over time a little bit. Listen, awe is good for my soul. When I stand in awe of God... And I, which produces worship and adoration and love and robust energy. It is good for my soul. The book of Isaiah talks about the one who is going to come and who's Messiah King, and it describes the type of person this person would be. And Jesus Christ lived life better than anybody has ever lived. He's a prototype for true masculinity. He's the one who showed us how to really live and flourish under the hand of God. And this is what it says about the coming Messiah. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord and the delight and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, the adoration of the Lord. His delight shall be in the reverence of the Lord. And I ask you, church, is that us? Is that me? Because this is good for my soul. He will delight, be glad in the fear 
of the Lord. Then I think of Psalm 36, which talks about the non-fearing and the fearing person. Psalm 36 starts off by saying, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God. There's no awe of God in the heart of a transgressor before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He just flatters himself. Says, God doesn't see. God doesn't know. God doesn't judge. I'm my own man. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I do my own thing. And then he says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And he has ceased to act wisely and to do good. And he plots trouble while on his bed. And he sets himself in a way that is not good. And he does not reject evil. It's a bad dude. Then the psalmist breaks away and he just kind of thinks about the character of God. And he says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds and your righteousness is like the mountains of God and your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. And then he says this, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them from the river of your delights. And I just stopped and said, God, said, am I feasting on the greatness of God? Am I drinking from the river of delights that flows from the throne of God? And that's why Jonathan Edwards said with such incredible insight, he said, you know, Don't get caught up in God's gifts. Get caught up in God. He says that that the greatest gifts are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. See, the greatest gifts are, are the beams that flow from the sun that is God. The greatest delights are flowing from the river whose source is God. Now, you know, I... Some of you enjoying the Olympics. I was reading a book about the early Olympics. One of the earliest Olympics uh, recorded in 564 BC. And at this game, they had a, a, a contact sport forbidden to boys. It was called the Pancration event. And it was a no-hose-barred free-for-all, which the only rules were you cannot bite and you cannot gouge out the eyes. Other than that, everything is fair game. And talked about one Olympic hero named Arcarion, who was from the mountains of Greece, who came to the Games in 564. He's a two-time winner in this event. And his opponent, however, got a grip on him from the first and held Arcarion trapped between his legs, choking the life out of him. Arcarion, with his final breath, reached out and broke the toe of his opponent. Um, but as he did so, he, strangled, he was strangled and he expired. But the opponent screamed in pain and jumped up, forfeiting the match. And Arcarian won, but he was dead. And so the official said, what do we do? He's dead. They said, they propped him up, put the wreath on his head. He said, here's the winner. He's dead. And I thought, you know, that, that's kind of like the world system. You know. Here, you're dead, but enjoy it. We promise while we can't deliver, enjoy it. I thought, you know, if you know Jesus, you get the real joy now and the ultimate superlative joy in the world to come. It's good. And I just ask you, ask, are you drinking from the river of his delights? Are you rejoicing in the good? Are you just saying, like the old hymn says, 
I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. God, how in the world can you? But you do, you love me. You give me a future and a hope. You love me. You give me a track to run on. You love me. I, I, I want to stand in awe of God. Very quick, two things. I think of the fear of God, the awe of God being good for us. Proverbs 31 talks about the godly woman. She does this, she does that. She's an entrepreneur. She's a worker. She's a provider. She's loved by her family. She's esteemed by her community. Her husband is applauded just because he's married to her. And we can miss really verse 30, which sums it all up. It says, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, what's the basic impetus in her life? She stands in awe of God. Thanks be to God for godly women who stand in awe of God. And what she does was the overflow. And it fills you with, with robust energy. Like I said, many of you are watching the Olympics from Rio de Janeiro. That's the Christ of Rio de Janeiro stands over the city. Let me tell you a story about Rio de Janeiro. The year is 1557. 1557, a group of believers from Geneva who have been taught by John Calvin go to this area that would be called Rio de Janeiro, take the gospel and plant a colony where the gospel would be preached to those around them. And they're led by a very wealthy entrepreneur, a man by the name of Vallegian. And Vallegian is leading them out, and when he gets there, he's had second thoughts, and so he turns against this tiny group of people, and he gets in cahoots with the existing church that was filled with tradition and non-gospel-loving legalism, and so he turns them in to these authorities. And the authorities arrest the key leaders, they take them to a room, they put them under a lock and guard, and they give them some paper and some ink quills, and they said, we want you to write out a confession and to confess your sins, and maybe we'll have mercy upon you. Well, these men sat down without a Bible, without any aids, and they wrote an incredibly beautiful confession of faith about Jesus, about salvation by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. They wrote out about, about the Christian life. But one, the first article says that we believe in one God, immortal, invisible, creator of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, who is identified in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who constitute nothing else but the same substance and essence eternal and of the same will. And it's just filled with Scripture. And we believe in the Father who's the source and the beginning of all good. And we believe that Jesus Christ came, born of the Virgin Mary, made under the law to rescue those that were held under the law in order that we might be received by adoption as God's own sons by faith alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is the teacher of all truth and speaking through the mouths of the prophets bringing the things that were said by our Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles. He is the only comforter in affliction, imparting steadfastness and perseverance in all good. And they wrote this out, and they delivered their confession, and they knew they were signing their death warrant. And 12 hours later, three of them were hung by the neck and executed, and the rest were sent back to Geneva. I thought, that's robust energy.
That's standing in awe of God. That's, they probably may have been singing a pretty recent hymn by a guy from Germany named Luther that says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. They are the real athletes of Rio de Janeiro. They are the real Olympic heroes. It's because they stood in awe of God. Church, may we do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of studying the Bible. Come, Holy Spirit, apply this to our lives. Bless us this week. This week, may we stand in awe of you. May the the little issues that may beleaguer us uh, melt away as we glory in the goodness of all that you are for us in Christ. So bless us. Teach us and open our eyes to see, I pray. Lord, all of us are leaky vessels. Let us all get to a place where we are in awe of you, which leads to adoration and worship and love and energetic faith, emboldened faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.